Thank you for tuning in to the ShermCast, the Sherman Center podcast. Entrepreneurship is mentally taxing. So how do you make sure that you take care of your mental health just as much as you take care of your business? I think it's identifying activities that give you mental peace and then figuring out a way to put it into your schedule and not compromising on it for work at any given time. So it could be anything from meditation to working out to cooking to reading, whatever it is. But identifying things that truly give you a sense of calm and not compromising on that for anything. So for me, that for me, meditation helps because I'm naturally a very excited person. Uh, so that that and also like I think working out, running things like this are scientifically also proven to be great because they release endorphins, which make you happy and keep you energized throughout. So being sure you keep doing these things. So you have to figure out how to continue to build the mental endurance, push it a little bit before you withdraw, and push it further each time. Because a lot of people think that the moment that they feel stressed, they should rest. And they never go beyond 100%. I want, I want to say 110% before you pull back. Or 120%. And then slowly the 110% becomes your new 100%. That's what you want to do. But a lot of time people stay at 100%. And that was their first barrier. And it never, it never breaks. And you never improve from there. And if you're not mentally prepared for it, like I said, you're going to crumble. And that's when you start hearing the bad stuff. Don't get yourself to that point. Welcome back, everyone, to The Shermcast, a podcast by the Michael J. and Anne Sherman Center for Engineering Entrepreneurship Education. We're your hosts, Aya Aragon and Yuki Nishida. There is an unspoken mental health crisis in the entrepreneurial world, especially amongst startups. On this episode, we wanted to discuss mental health in the scope of entrepreneurship. A widely cited study by Michael A. Freeman, a researcher from UC San Francisco, surveyed 242 entrepreneurs and 93 demographically matched participants and found some striking results. In his study, 49% of entrepreneurs reported having one or more mental health conditions and that startup founders are twice as likely to suffer from depression, six times more likely to suffer from ADHD, three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse, 10 times more likely to suffer from bipolar disorder, and twice as likely to have a psychiatric hospitalization for suicidal thoughts. Freeman built upon some other limited studies that reported similar findings. While he acknowledges flaws in his own study, such as selection bias and limited understanding of each participant's family backgrounds, he and his co-authors concluded that entrepreneurial culture and stigmatization of mental health are contributing to this unspoken health crisis. The World Economic Forum interviewed Dr. Paul Hokemeyer, an expert in elite identity constructions, who has said that in his clinical experiences, he noted that entrepreneurs suffer from a host of personality disorders, such as narcissism, sudden wealth syndrome, and imposter syndrome. The term imposter phenomenon, now called imposter syndrome, was introduced in 1978 in the article 
The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention by Dr. Pauline R. Clance and Dr. Suzanne A. Imes. It defines a sense of low self-esteem and low self-acknowledgement of one's own successes. While not a mental disorder, it can be accompanied by anxiety, stress, or depression, and affects both men and women. For this episode, we spoke to two of the Sherman Center's own entrepreneurs and former co-ops, Tuan Ho and Vidan Bea. And rather than asking them about how they built their companies, we wanted to focus on how building their companies affected them. Tuan and his best friend, Joseph Alim, started their own venture, ScholarJet, four years ago as a Sherman Center co-op. He's since graduated from Northeastern and continues to grow ScholarJet post-graduation. ScholarJet partners with employers to create online skill-based competitions where applicants can get hired and win funding for their education. Tuan came to the U.S. from Vietnam at the age of 10. When he graduated high school, he struggled with the cost of paying for college, living in a single-parent household. Because of this, he wrote over 120 essays to apply for 40 scholarships, earning him enough money for a full ride to Northeastern. So what's been the hardest part about being a CEO? You've never been able to realize what they are going through. And it's oftentimes required a lot of empathy to understand. And if you haven't been there, it's hard to resonate and sympathize. Oftentimes, I feel like I'm responsible for every single thing that happens. And it's also a double-edged sword in a sense that it allows me to take control of my action, but also at the same time, I'm responsible for the people who I invited to join the team. I'm responsible for the investors who put in the money to help us grow. I'm responsible for the employers who decided to partner with us I'm responsible for every single interaction and you know personally as well as I want to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs that come from low-income background or underrepresented and so all this pressure feel like Atlas carrying the world but I mean if you just plainly look at that it feels very hubris per se but in reality carrying all that weight is taxing. What do you want people to know about entrepreneurs? The hard part is being able to balance your, like the biggest part, and you can find this tweet pin on David Cancel, the CEO and founder of Drift. He said that, and I agreed, the hard part of being a founder is not necessarily about fundraising or business or dealing with people. The hard part is being able to manage all of that in motion turmoil and not go insane. And I think I thought college was enough to like stress you out. I think it is much easier to handle the stress if your action doesn't affect other people's life. But when your action do affect other people's life. You are not essentially just doing things for yourself anymore. You're doing things for everyone else as well. And it's it almost feels as though every single word I say, every single step I take, or every single move I make, every single email and sentence I wrote, 
or will write. It has to be perfect and on point. Can you describe one of the lowest moments where it was just hard to keep a smile on your face? Two or three weeks ago, when I was trying to fundraise in San Francisco, and raising money is essentially to grow the business, but also at the same time extending runway, so then everyone in the company is not going to be homeless. But um, personal relationship was not working out well. Very stressed um, in in personal relationship, but that things at home wasn't working well. Like moms going through stuff, and and then keeping the team motivated, and then pitching to investors, and then accepting the rejections. All of that was happening at the same time. San Francisco is really expensive, and I was basically burning a hole through my wallet eating ramen alone. And that was insane. And I was also like asking friends within the area if anyone was able to house me because I couldn't really afford to stay uh, at a hotel or Airbnb because Airbnb in San Francisco is crazy expensive. And so all of that was happening. And I was like, how the hell am I able to maintain that emotional fortitude? But it almost feels as though my physical attributes has helped me i mean i do a lot of exercise i do plenty of martial arts and it was emotionally taxing but i think the physical attributes also help um but yeah that was probably one of the worst time uh like how do you go into a pitch with a smile when you know everything is on you the psychology aspect too is like knowing the right word to say and not have stuff you're trying to quantify every single aspect and being able to pick up on emotions it's almost unfathomable how that was happening and I feel like it's not unique just to me everyone else went through the same thing and you know if I'm lucky the hard work pays off do you suffer from imposter syndrome and how do you combat those feelings? Yeah, I faced that a couple of times. And I say a couple of times because I was like, this is weird. Why am I feeling this way? I found a perfect solution to, to, to do it, um, to dissolve the, the imposter syndrome. And maybe it worked for me. Maybe it worked for some other people, but not for most. The way to have combat that is essentially whenever I was about to go up to stage and give a speech or whenever I was about to make a pitch, I asked myself, 15 years from now, what type of person I am? It also, it removes me from the, cert- the current situation. And well, because I'm quite optimistic about the future, I'm like, okay, yeah, 15 years from now, I'll be a billionaire, whatever, right? I'm going to be so amazing. I'm going to be helping a lot of people, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. Bring it back to now. Great. So what they're getting is me before 15 years so I'm almost as though I'm giving them a gift the imperfection the struggle story before I made it so this is essentially for them what I'm doing Um, 15 years in the future going back in time and trying to make like a pitch or presentation and that has helped me overcome like Instead of what most people do, 
instead of thinking about that concept, they go back in time even further. They're like, what have I done to this up to this point to allow me the audacity to go in front of these people? What I do instead is to jump to the future and then jump back to the present. We also spoke to Vidan Bea. He was a Sherman Center co-op in spring 2019 and was actually the first co-op to be based entirely abroad in India. His venture built upon a company that his family had created when he was growing up. Cool. So my name is Vidan Bhaiya and I'm a fourth year chemical engineer here at Northeastern. I'm, I've been involved with the Sherman Center primarily through uh, my venture, which is Dr. Brinsley. I was the Sherman Center co-op for the spring of 2019. And I was also a Generate client in the fall of 2018. So it's been a phenomenal time working with all of the great people at the Sherman Center. Can you give us a brief description of what Dr. Brinsley is? So every 20 seconds, one foot is lost due to diabetes in the world today. Half of these could be prevented if people just wore correct footwear. So we're currently on a mission to bring to people footwear that they actually want to wear so that they don't have to choose between looking good and losing their foot. So we've been working on this venture for the last two years and it's been a phenomenal journey. So what started off as just a, a curious engineering design project we've now has now turned into a full-fledged company with eight people working with us and I think eight months working on this full-time with the help of the Sherman Center Co-op definitely helped get this company started. And in those eight months, at the end of it, I'm happy to say that we have a presence in 85-plus hospitals and clinics in a few cities in India. What's been the most mentally taxing part of starting your venture? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me has been just how emotionally involved I am with uh, the fortunes of the company because it's, it's sort of like your baby, right? And so there's, there's ups and downs every single day and you are personally impacted by all of these ups and downs. So that can get emotionally very debilitating. And so now I've started to like figure out how to sort of like separate my personal life from my venture. As an entrepreneur, I think it's easy to get caught up in the fact that you should be working on this 24-7 all the time because you just, you're born to believe that the more time you spend on it, the better your resu results will be. And so you should constantly be working on it. I've sort of, I decided to then now stop working over the weekends. I said, I when I, I then work at the office and once I got back home, I'd say, unless it's super important, I will absolutely not, not do work. So I think for me, this separation of a, through a geographic location helped. And just saying that the weekends are reserved just for me and being okay with that, I think was what helped me separate these two things. Building off of that, what has been the most rewarding part? I think um, we the reactions from our customers has been incredible. Uh, that is something that I'm very, very happy and proud about. Uh, it's nice to say that, oh, I want to buy this for my grandmother and they bought it and they're like, oh yeah, she loved it. And so uh, that's, that's a great feeling that people love your product. And plus now we have a whole team working with us and 
they say that they're learning and growing from this experience. And I think that to me has been um, a very rewarding part of this whole journey. Was there a specific moment where you realized you had to start separating your work and your personal life? Like, was there a time when you realized that the relationship you had with your work was unsustainable? Yeah, so I think the first three and a half months for us were particularly difficult because so we had production issues, we were um, not able to find the right people to hire on our team, uh, and because we had production issues, we were not able to pu push up, uh, push sales. So it felt like I was starting to question why am I even in this? And at that point, I was just like thinking about it all the time. I'd come back home pretty dejected. And so that started to get very, very tough. So. I was lucky to have my parents uh, with me in India, who were a, were a constant, so were and are still a constant source of support. And so they said, okay, fine, we're gonna break this down into the what the actual problem is, and then give it one final push to see if they can actually take it somewhere or call it quits with just learning. And that final push got me going, and that's taken us forward. I. I also actually want to add that I used to have weekly uh, reflection calls with Andrew and Ted. So we, so I used to do a weekly reflection, which I'd then send out every Sunday, and we'd talk about it Monday morning. And that, I think, was also a very, very big part of why I continued on this journey, because A, I could trace my journey from where I started to where I was, because I had it weekly and I'd look back and I'm like, okay, so my problems have gotten bigger, but I also know how to solve them now. Also, the conversations with Andrew and Ted were great because we talk about all the decisions I made, um, why I took those decisions. And if some of the days I was just like saying, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, Andrew was also, why is this bullshit and why are you feeling so angry? And then we talk about that. And so that really helped me Keep going. We know you were the first Sherman Center co-op to go abroad, and you worked in India. Your venture built a lot upon the business that your family owned while you were growing up there. Did you work a lot with your family? Yeah, so we interacted a lot with them for the production, and I worked out of their office. How did working professionally with your family affect the relationship that you had with them? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because um, Production-wise, it's it's hard because uh, if any order has to get delayed, the first order that will get delayed is Vedan's order because he's family. Uh, so it was sort of, uh, for me, it was part of like building up the impression that I really care. So for me, that meant going to the factory every week just to show my face, to say that, hey, how's it going? What's the progress? And so that sort of, I really worked on that. And I think it was important for me to not say that I'm the boss of son to get my work done because that would just breed future problems. And so that's something I stayed away from and I wanted to wanted the team to feel like they cared about this problem because I care about it. So that's sort of how um, we interacted. And working out of the office was, was nice because I'd sort of like help out with just like smaller things here and there in the office which other people in the office felt and in the family business felt happy that I could do for them, so. How did it feel to leave behind the resources and community I had at Northeastern? And how did it feel to come back where you grew up? 
Yeah. So um, I absolutely love being on campus. I was back for uh, three days in April, and I like I landed in Boston. I was walking around campus, and I I had I had a big smile on my face just to be here. So I think I definitely miss the energy of this place, and most importantly, the community. because there were so many people around me who are doing similar things or could relate to my struggles so the challenges of being a student managing a venture starting out so early things like that there were there were a lot of people doing the same thing so i sorely missed that however on the other hand i think for me the journey was made easier because of the fact that my family was there and secondly like um I have a lot of high school friends who are still back in the same city. So socially, I had a good group. It was just sometimes professional mental support. That's when uh, that's something that I lacked back back in India. I remember interviewing you for the newsletter right before you left for your co-op, and you said that you were really nervous that people wouldn't buy your product, but you said that if they don't. it would be a good learning experience did you keep that positive outlook throughout your entire time as a co-op and if it faltered how did you get that positivity back yeah so i think for the first couple of months we still didn't uh, we, uh, we were like very very positive and at the end of 3 and a half 4 months that's when things started to get really difficult and when things are not moving then that's when you start questioning why am i even in this is it even worth is is there even a problem worth solving for me um i think that sort of f- there were few things like i got a chance to speak to some of my friends who'd say that banana it's just been 4 months don't be so hard on yourself um and i think the biggest challenge was that like from the outside 4 months you spent on a venture and it didn't really do much that's completely okay but it's just the internal pressure that i had to sort of like deal with and so they it was understanding and realizing that it's okay and then the second part of it was that the conversation with my parents when i was absolutely uh breaking down that really helped me make that final push and that final push was with everything i got and that really triggered a chain of good events which then was fun. And uh, now uh, only if you want to but could you describe one of the lowest moments in your journey towards creating nonfiction? Yeah, so it this was I think 4 months in we had had two sales which were to friends and family and our production was delayed by 3 months our doctors we hadn't gotten a single doctor on board and uh, somebody from our team was quitting who was an important part of the team so that that all was was a lot so i just came back and i was just on my bed and i just didn't want to wake up after that like i was just like okay i'm not i'm not i don't want to get out of this bed right now um for me then i sort of I had a good conversation with my parents after that and I said okay I'm just going to go for a drive so I I drove to my high school it's beautiful in the night so I drove to my high school listened to good music and thought about things that matter to me and 
how it was it was nice to see the past and in three years how far I come from leaving that school to where I was right now and sort of putting that into perspective thinking whether my high school staff would have been proud of me right now I downright think he would and so sort of all these things just built that confidence once more and uh, so on the way back I put on some peppy music I said the mojo is now back and we're gonna actually try to kick ass what advice do you have for people who are feeling stressed or hopeless with their venture hmm I think um, most importantly firstly is that it just the stress just increases so you a you have to be ready for more and more stress to be a part of your life throughout I think um, so just be accept that and if it's not for you take the call early and if it is for you I think it's important to realize the need for self-care the to realize that I think it's important that that hustle 24/7 mentality is extremely bad for your mental health for your physical health and for your venture because you're not you cannot be productive 24/7 so I think understanding this that you don't need to be working 24/7 is important second thing I'd say is that things will take time and to not be bothered by anybody else's success I think this venture if you are driven by external motivation it's hard to keep going I think if internally you really want to take this forward as uh, that sort of like that should be the motivation to keep going uh, everybody's time will come I often say that um, popcorn seeds are cooked in the same oil but all of them pop at different times so your time to pop is will come soon <laughs> We'd like to thank Tuan and Vidan for taking the time to interview with us. You can find more about Tuan's company, ScholarJet, at scholarjet.com and Vidan's company, Dr. Brinsley, at brinsley.in. If you want to read more about the study we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, it is called Our Entrepreneurs Touch With Fire by Michael A. Freeman, and will be included in the description. If you need more information on mental health care for you or for a loved one, the National Alliance on Mental Health Hotline is available Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at 1-800-950-6264. A 24-hour hotline is available through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 800 662 If you aren't already subscribed to the Sherman Center newsletter, you can sign up on our website, northeastern.edu slash Sherman. It comes out every Friday and will keep you updated on things happening in the engineering entrepreneurship community for both Northeastern and the greater Boston area. Our music is by Bureaucratic. You can find more at bureaucratic.bandcamp.com. Make sure to tune in for our next episode, and thanks everyone for listening.